So, 1 Peter 1, 13, Peter goes into therefore. I'm going to jump right in because even in these four verses, we've got a lot to cover. Uh, he jumps into therefore, um, and then he's going to give us two instructions. Those are the two things that we're going to focus on, the two instructions to set our hope and to imitate our Father where to set our hope and to imitate our Father. And he gives these two instructions, um, and we're going to focus on those two instructions this morning. But before the therefore comes something um, preceding it. And thank you so much to Steve and Jordan who laid out those verses, um, 1 through 12. And uh, it's a beautiful thing that Peter launches into for these believers that he's writing this letter to. Um, And he starts out with this greeting, and then he gets to verse 3. And really, verse 3 through 12 is just one sentence in the Greek. Um, So it's, if you like run-on sentences, this is for you. That 3 through 12 is a run-on sentence. But it's really important to know what he starts out with before he gets to the therefore, because it's very important. That's the pattern we see in the New Testament. This is the pattern we see of where he starts before he gives the instruction. So he starts out, blessed be the God and Father. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And this ensures and buys for us an inheritance that's incorruptible, unfading, undefiled, kept for us in heaven. And even now, we are being guarded by God's very power for that salvation that's to be revealed in the last day. And now even the suffering and the hard things and the trials that we go through, and even the testimony we just heard from Blaine, now these things, even the hard things in this world, in this present age, are working for us a great good that Peter says is more precious than gold. It's a refining fire that produces in us the faith that will reveal to us in that day that Jesus comes, honor, glory, and praise. So even now the hard things, because God is our Father, because we've been born again into this new family, Even those things are worked for our good. And now, even though we don't see God, even though we don't see Jesus, we love him. We have an affection for him because he's come to make our home, his home in us by his Holy Spirit. So we love him and we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. This is incredible news. This is what God has done. And this salvation that God has brought, the prophets of old, the great prophets of old, inquired carefully to know when this salvation was coming. They're looking into it. They knew it wasn't for them, but they were in, in fascinated with what was coming. And now to this day, Peter says, the angels are, are marveling at the salvation that's been brought to us through Jesus Christ. So this is what he starts off. That one long thing I just went through is one sentence in the Greek. It's verses 3 through 12. He says, look what God has done. Look at who you are. Look at your future. Now, therefore, therefore. And this pattern is incredibly important because when we mix it up, when we flip it over, when we start with the instructions, you need to do this to be born again. You need to do this to become a child of God. It starts first with God's mercy and grace. He finds us, he rescues us, and he calls us his own. We have to start there. If we don't start there, we miss it entirely. But Peter does give instructions, beautiful instructions. And so after he's given this long, marvelous display of what God has done in Jesus Christ and what it means for us, He starts off and he says, 
to therefore prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this first part says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. The prepare your minds for action really is literally in the Greek, gird up your loins. We don't have that in the English because we don't have a lot of girding up of loins. I don't know. Maybe there is in this room. I don't know everybody in this room, the girding up of loins. But it was this imagery that um, especially the men wore these long robes and had a belt to tie around. Um, I'm interested in this uh, fashion trend maybe returning during the summer and get a little airflow in the August, September. I'm not sure if it's going to catch on uh, or maybe I'll start that trend and no one will follow. We'll see how it goes. Um, But in order to move quickly, they had to gather up the robe and tie it and they'd be ready to move and ready for action. So this, this call, this first instruction from Peter is that be ready, be attentive, Um, And even that sober-minded is the same connotation. Um, One commentary just describes it, stay on your toes spiritually. That meant a lot to me. We have one of the guys in our discipleship group was telling me, telling us how God has been speaking to them through that as he was teaching his son um, in football, in flag football, that you got to stay on your toes. You got to be ready to go. They're going to blow past you. Um, I've been uh, trying to teach Caleb a little basketball defense. He's been uh, getting so better, so much better at dribbling. We're trying to do defense. You've got to be on your toes. You've got to be a little bit lower. Because if you're not, if you're standing straight up, I'm just going to blow past you. And if you've played pickup basketball with me, you find that ironic because I'm not into a lot of defense. I'm looking to get my shots up um, in the defense. Don't tell Caleb that. Um, but uh, not looking a lot to play a lot of defense. But it has this imagery of being ready to move, being being alert to not being asleep, to not drift through life. Because what he's going to point through is that we have to have an intentionality in where we put our mind, where we put our hope. Because if we are not intentionally put our hope on the story that God is telling through Scripture and the good news, we will drift into hoping in what this world hopes for. We will live for this life. And he's saying, you are a new people. This is not your home. This is, what P, this is what Steve started out with. We are beloved exiles. This is not our home. But if we are not intentional, this is why Peter gives this instruction first. If we're not intentional of where we put our hope, it will go somewhere else than the good news that Jesus is telling us through the scriptures. So, where does he first say, okay, gird up the loins, be sober-minded. What's the instruction? What does he focus on? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Get ready. Be intentional. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We do not drift into living from this hope we do have to intentionally set our minds on it. But this hope, this hope, this grace to be revealed to us, another translation really with this word grace can just be the blessing to be brought to us, those that are gods, those that have been rescued, who have put their faith in Jesus and now are born again into the family of God. We should have expectation of what is coming to us when Jesus is revealed in the last time, when he comes again. So I just want to talk about two dangers and two, two dangers of how we, we don't 
we are not able to obey this command from Peter um, of how we're not able to move towards that. I just put it in a crisis of imagination and the allure of this world. So I'm just going to focus on those two things this morning on this um, setting our mind instruction from Peter. Um, in the first crisis of imagination, um, Peter is, is addressing some believers that are going through some intense trials, and probably when this letter is written, probably about to go through even more intense trials as, as Nero, the emperor Nero, was about to or had already begun intense persecution. Some of the worst things that had happened, have happened to Christians on this earth were happening during his reign. Um, and so I got this article. I read this, one of my f- favorite articles I've read um, is from a, a Christian author, um, John Eldridge. And he wrote an article in a magazine. It's a short article, um, but uh, it's about heaven. But he, he starts it out like this, um, and I'm just going to read it. It's a little bit longer of a quote, but I'm going to read it for us. John says, my wife said to me just the other day, I'm having a crisis of imagination about heaven. John continues, it's been a tough year for our family and those near us. A tragic suicide followed by the loss of our first grandson. Eight months of chronic pain, the kind only narcotics give you any relief from, ends in a total hip replacement for my wife, Stacy. Having lunch with some dear friends, they tell me their nine-year-old boy is going blind. And then a friend calls us a few weeks ago to say her body is shutting down and she has months to live. I could go on. We've just been around too much loss. And when you do, you grow weary of this hurting world and wonder if the next chapter is really going to make it all worth it. Thus, the comment about heaven. He goes on to talk about um, heaven, this renewal of all things that Jesus is going to bring. For most of us, and I would put myself here and include myself in this, um, our, our imaginations have been robbed about this blessing and this good news of his coming again, of what we're to be received, what we're to receive. And so when we can't imagine it, when nothing comes into our mind or we only have vague ideas, it's hard to get excited about that future. It's hard to obey the command from Peter to set our hope fully on this blessing, this grace to be revealed to us in Jesus. John continues, says, you can only hope for what you desire. And most of our images about heaven are, are just not that desirable. So they don't fill our souls with hope. He says, I'm glad Stacy named it a crisis of imagination because that is exactly what it is. Not a crisis of doctrine, not even of belief, but of imagination. We can't conceive of it, so we simply don't think about it. Vague ideas do not awaken fantasies. He talks about, we all daydream about things, not even sinful daydreams. I've got a trip in August that I'm daydreaming about in the mountains when it will not be 110 degrees and a humidity of 112%. I look forward to that because I can imagine that. I've never been there, but I know that I'm going, and so I have some ideas about it. They aren't vague, and so there's an excitement. There's an expectation for that future. So to help his wife, John said, after Stacy confessed this crisis, he simply said, think of the Tetons. I think I have a picture of that on a slide. He's referring um, to the Grand Tetons. Um, that's pretty nice. I'll take that in August. Um, he wanted to spark her imagination. 
This is a place that had been important to their family. And so he gave her an image to think about. The glory of God manifests in the beauty of creation. Creation sings the glory of our God. And if this is what we have now, we should be thinking about what it could be like on that day when he makes all things new, and it is his promise. And so to allow something like creation, and maybe it's not that, maybe it's a a dinner table with close friends who know you and love you. Maybe it's good food. I know that does it for me, but awaken the imagination. After he said this, and he said, think about the Tetons, he comments that her face lit up like a young girl who wakes up and remembers it's her birthday. Well, I have a five-year-old girl whose birthday is in two days. And she had her birthday party on Saturday. And driving home from school on Friday afternoon, she said, Dad, there's no way I'm going to sleep tonight. I cannot sleep. There's no way I'm going to fall asleep. I'm too excited about my birthday party. I'm just so excited. Of course, she crashed that night and fell asleep hard like she always does. Um, But she was excited because she could imagine it. She was excited even though she didn't know what it would totally look like. Her mom was the one preparing it for her. Her mom did all the work, and it was wonderful. It was amazing. It was incredible. It was an art party. Who doesn't love an art party? The girls love the art parties. She could imagine it, even though she didn't know what it was going to look like. And I got to see her face when she did, and she ran out of the car and runs to see all the decorations set up and all the things and the activities and the cupcakes they were going to decorate and the joy that filled her face. It makes me think about John 14, when Jesus, as he's about to leave his disciples and die, he said, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me, that you may be with me where I am. This is a beautiful news of Jesus. He calls us his own now. And he tells us to look forward to what he is preparing for us. He is excited to lavish his goodness on us for all eternity. And that should fill our hearts with hope now. And when that does, it directly affects how we live today. And when we cannot have that hope or do not have that hope or the future of what God has in store for us, it affects how we live today negatively. This is why Peter makes it such an important point that he's, that he's bringing. Ellie made some requests. She, she wanted an art party. She wanted some things, but she didn't know fully what it would look like. Jesus makes some staggering claims in the Gospels. Can I read one to you? Okay, cool. Thank you. I got, I got two people that said I could, so I'm going to run with that. Matthew 19, Jesus said to them, truly, he said, I'm telling you the truth here. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus' promises to those who leave everything to follow him will have more than we could possibly imagine in the future that he has in store for us. And that means that today, no matter what's going on, as a child of God, your future ultimately is wonderful. I remember a sermon 
that uh, Randy preached, and he, he bring, that, bring that line of, your future is wonderful. And in Christ, it's true. And if this feels weird to us to just settle in, that let's settle into us that my future is wonderful no matter what. We have to ask, what story are we believing? Is it the story that Jesus lays out? Or is it another story that's being told to us from somewhere else besides the scriptures? Because Paul says, this light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And, and again, in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. When we don't intentionally get used to setting our mind and our expectation and our excitement about what Jesus is bringing to us, and that day that he's coming, then it will affect that movement. And we have to ask ourselves, will we, will we be able to believe what Paul believed, that he knew that it's not worth comparing. What he went through is just not worth comparing to what was coming. But in this life, we don't only expect hardship and sadness, because God created this world and he created it good. And it's been broken, and that's why we experience the things that we do. But there are beautiful beacons and lights that this world is good, and there are good things coming. Um, when uh, I lost my notes here. I'm going to get it back. Don't worry. Maybe. Sorry, I had to use a new, a new iPad today, and I'm learning I'm learning on the fly for us. There's a quote from Edmund Clowney, and I just want to read it to us because I think this is an important point to focus on at the end of this, that he says that Christian sobriety is not joyless gloom, but glad hope in the new order to come with Christ. The blessing and the grace of that day is future, but it is already arriving for we already have a foretaste of what God will give us when Christ appears. It's not just the beauty of this creation or the good things of this world. Ultimately, ultimately, we need to allow the sweetness of knowing Jesus now to let our imaginations run wild on how wonderful it will be to see him face to face. To know him, as Paul wrote, to know him as we have been known, to know him fully as we have been known now, Ultimately, he has brought the kingdom of God into our lives now, the, the, of the available presence of God through the Holy Spirit to taste the goodness. And if it is as sweet as it is, as it is of what we've experienced of God's love for us now, we can look forward to the day where it will be unimpeded. There will be no obstacles in the way, no flesh, no spiritual warfare, no Satan, no enemy, no death. Jesus removes all obstacles so we can enjoy him fully. And this is what Peter tells these Christians to set their hope fully on. He tells them this is what to intentionally set your mind on. The other great danger is just the allure of this world. I think it's a greater danger. Though, Paul, though Peter was writing to some Christians that were going through intense persecution or about to go through worse persecution, I think possibly in our day, 
even though some persecution has increased in the American church, in the American church for the most part, the persecution we have experienced is nothing compared to what many of the world are experiencing and what the early Christians experienced. So I think the greater danger is to find that in our lives as we're living that we find that we, we have no need for this future hope. If we find that we have all that we need here and what this world has to offer, I think this is the greater danger. That John, the Apostle John, instructs us to not love the things of this world that are passing away. Um, in the early church, the, the Nero persecution flew through, and those Christians died well. And I've shared this in a previous sermon, but I have to share it again because this quote has hit me so deeply. Those Christians died well, and, they, and Christianity, uh, much less of being thwarted and stomped out in the Roman Empire, it spread because these people that died, died with a hope and lived with a hope that was not like this world had. And so people were drawn to it, and it spread and it grew and grew until it was completely accepted and became accepted by the Roman Empire. So about 300 years later, after that widespread acceptance of Christianity, there was a bishop named John Christentum, and he was calling out that the Christians in the Roman Empire had grown comfortable with the world and what it had, had to offer because they had, they had left the persecution. We don't long for persecution, but because of that, they'd start to get, to get used to what this world had to offer and get comfortable within it. And he wrote these words that are pretty scathing words to his Christians of his day. He said, we admire wealth equally, equally with the non-Christians and even more. We have the same horror of death, the same dread of poverty, the same impatience of disease. We are equally fond of glory and rule. How then can they believe? He's talking about how they lost their witness. How could the non-Christians believe when they lived just like them? They had grown comfortable with this world. I don't know if you've ever walked into a room and just encountered a really awful smell. You find that if you can't find and eliminate the smell, the other option is just to stay in the room, and it goes away. Kind of. If anyone else steps into the room, they realize the smell has not gone away. You've just gotten used to it. The smell is no longer there because it's like asking a fish, how's the water? You've heard this. What, what's water? We get, we've drift into that we don't even recognize the ways we conform to this world in the pattern of this world. And without setting our minds intentionally on that reality, that the, the reality that this is not our home, we will drift in the, into the ways of this world. So that moves us into verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. John Christendom was pointing out that his believers, once a vibrant faith, and through all the persecution, a testimony to the world that God, that Jesus, was real and that they had a hope that could not be conquered. He's testifying that they had forgotten and they had been conformed back to the ways of their former ignorance. And so Peter is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. You've been born again into a new family. He starts out, obedient children. You got a new family, you got a new dad. This family is set apart from the ways of the world. So he says, instead, 
Let's look at the call, what he says to do instead. Don't be conformed, but as he who called you is faith is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So don't be conformed to the former ignorance. Instead, imitate your father. You've been born again to a new family. And as God is holy, you are to be holy. Don't be conformed. Set your, set your mind, set your hope fully on what's coming to you in Jesus. Don't be conformed to that past life, the way of this world. Instead, instead, imitate your father. Be holy as he is holy. Both in the Old and New Testament speak more about God's holiness than any other attribute. Be holy as he is holy. The only problem with that, I don't know if this is a problem you have, so what does that mean? Be holy, okay. <laughs> Are y'all ready to go? Let's get out of here. Walk out the doors, let's go be holy. There's just, would be a huge mix within this room of what that actually means to us. And maybe a better question is, what do you feel when I say those words? Be holy. What comes into your body? Is it anxiety? It is for me. <laughs> Is it maybe a little bit of tinge of guilt? Maybe it's what comes to mind is all the things I'm not doing right. Be holy. But he gives this command, and I think he means it. So we have to ask, what is it? We're just going to walk through three things really quickly, and I wish we had more time, but we don't, so it's going to be quicker. On this holiness thing, what is it? Why is it wonderful, and how to pursue it? Again, we're not going to touch a lot, but what is it? Why is it wonderful? And how do we pursue it? I think in the easiest, even though this is a hard thing to describe, the holiness throughout Scripture just refers to the otherness of God. Maybe an easier way to describe it is He's just different. It's just different. You see this a lot in athletics. I love basketball. And you see somebody step onto the court, and they just say these things. He, he's different. I don't know if you guys have gotten on the Caitlin Clark bandwagon. Anybody in the room? Caitlin Clark, little, little women's college basketball. She's hitting step-back threes from 30 feet. And when she comes on the scene, the easiest way to – she's just different. This is a different experience. Caitlin Clark getting buckets is a different experience. I don't know about her defense because I don't care about defense, but I know her offense is different. And I don't know if that's helpful, but it's just the uniqueness of, the, of God, the contrast of him in this world, the contrast of him in us. One of my favorite is Isaiah 55, where we've, well, a lot of us are familiar that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than ours. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so higher his thoughts above our thoughts. That's in reference to how much he loves to forgive and pardon. It says, let the unrighteous come. Let the wicked turn to me so that I might abundantly pardon them. My ways are not your ways. We don't love to abundantly pardon. He does. That's just one example. And I think it's the most used phrase to describe God because it's like a grab bag of all the ways God is different and wonderful and amazing. He's just different. So what does this mean for us in this context? This is important. In your, conduct, in your conduct, he says, be holy, for I am holy. This um, quote, because it says, 
since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy, comes from Leviticus and several places in Leviticus, but one most, um, you, most clearly gets the, the quotation is Leviticus 19.2. And Leviticus, Leviticus 19 is a really interesting passage. I would commend you to go read it when you leave here. Speak to the whole congregations. Uh, this is God, Yahweh, God talking to Moses. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I Yahweh, your God, am holy. I'm using that word Yahweh there. That's just the, the unique name for the God of the Israelite people. There were a lot of gods in their day. There were a lot of gods in the, in the, the peoples that surrounded them, but God, Yahweh was the one true God, and he was uniquely different. And because he, had to, he wanted to set apart his people, the Israelite people, he gave them commands that they would be distinct from those around them. And Leviticus 19 is super interesting because it goes to give these commands. We're not going to read through it, but I'm going to paraphrase just these paragraphs that Yahweh gives to the Israelite people of how they are to live. And after each command, he gives them, he says, because he says, for I am Yahweh, your God. So he puts his name to it. He starts out first, interestingly enough, with honor your mother and your father. I think Peter's alluding here as he starts out as obedient children. He's pointing back to, we're imitating our father. We're imitating our parents. And then he says, keep your land in a way that provides for the poor and the stranger. Don't steal or lie. Treat your workers fairly. And after each one, he says, for I am Yahweh your God. Be kind to the least of these, for I am Yahweh your God. No partiality in your courts, for I am Yahweh your God. Don't slander, for I am Yahweh. Do not hate your brother, but instead seek to reconcile, for I am Yahweh your God. Don't take vengeance, for I am Yahweh your God. And it ends in verse 18 where it says, you might have heard this before, love your neighbor as yourself, for I am Yahweh your God. What does it mean to be holy? It means to live in the distinct way given to us ultimately through Jesus his life and his teachings, to love our neighbor as ourselves. To be holy is manifest in a life that's permeated by the great commandment. Paul writes, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments are all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus got it from somewhere. Got it from Leviticus but he and God are one. And so this has always has been what God has been bringing, wanting to bring into this world. And he brings it through his Israelite people and now into the new family of God through Jesus. And that is our future, the way of Yahweh. So now does it help love our neighbor as ourself, live in the way of Jesus, and yet still, this is a pretty daunting command. And when we encounter true holiness in another human being, it can be pretty daunting as well. It can be pretty intimidating. I have shared before that um, my yard maintenance is not where I want it to be. My yard does not look good. And I'm saying mine, I'm not including Kara in this. I'm putting all the responsibility on me. I'm leading up here, guys. I'm doing spiritual leadership. I'm stumbling my way. Um, my yard is, is awful. It's bad. And, um, 
when I'm driving through a neighborhood, the, the good thing is most of the yards look bad because we went through a pretty awful summer of 110 degrees with no rain for four months. That'll do it to your yard. But then occasionally I'll drive past one of my neighbors and this yard is immaculate. Like I don't go near the Hanfelt's house because I don't want to see what Mason has produced in his yard. And it's beautiful and it's edged and there's no weeds. And immediately what comes up in me is a little bit of jealousy, but also like condemnation. But then, but then the excuses come. Well, I mean, it was 110 degrees and there's no rain and it's just like it was bound to die and be terrible. But then my neighbor also had the same conditions. So then I start to run out of excuses. So then um, I will move to excuses to accusation. I'm like, they probably use some illegal yard drugs to make their yard the way that it is. Or they're maybe neglecting their children to make sure their yard looks as it does. So I feel those things. But in the end, I cannot deny the beauty of a good yard. I know that's the way it's supposed to look. I know mine is not it. From afar, it looks green. You get a little bit closer, you realize that's all weeds, baby. So I know, though, it is a good and beautiful thing. John Eldridge, our friend who wrote the article, wrote, also wrote a book. Um, and, and the book is, is good. I, I just love the title. The title of his book is The Utter Relief of Holiness. The Utter Relief of Holiness. Do we quickly move to condemnation and guilt and what I'm not? Or do we move to, oh, yeah, God, I want that. And I believe that you can work that in me. And I want to look like you. In the utter relief of holiness, John talks about Jesus. And I love this. He writes, there's no sense of Jesus in this holiness, this holiness conversation. He says, there's no sense of Jesus gritting his teeth. He is living life as it was meant to be. He was living life as it was meant to be lived. And that is the utter relief of holiness and how utterly attractive it is. Genuine goodness is captivating. It is captivating, but it also repels. And we saw that in the life of Jesus. Another spiritual hero of mine is Eric Liddell, and he writes this, The life of Jesus is the most beautiful that there has ever been. One would have thought people would be naturally attracted by it, but attractiveness is not the only virtue of goodness, of real goodness. It challenges. The challenge of Jesus' life was too great. The people saw by comparison how much of their goodness was only an outward show. It was only skin deep. They were too petty to answer the challenge, so they crucified him instead. And in my silly analogy about the yard, I feel those things popping up. Instead of seeing the challenge or seeing what could be or being captivated by what God intended for humans to look like, I want to defend myself, run, hide, fight. True goodness and holiness will be offensive to the prideful, 
but compelling to the humble. It was the religious leaders in their pride that put Jesus to death because they could not answer the challenge of his holiness. But it was the sinners who came to hear from him all the time. Luke 15.1 says, Now the tax and collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. And over and over and over in the scriptures and the gospels, you see that phrase, the tax collectors and sinners were drawn to him. Those who thought they were righteous were repelled by him and eventually put him to death. But those who knew they were not saw the goodness of Jesus, knew he was quite different and were drawn to him. And I think he has the same call for us to maintain that same humility and be drawn to him to become more like him. So how do we pursue this? The first thing is we just look at Jesus. We look at the life of Jesus. There has been no other like, life like him. He was bold. He stood up for the oppressed and the hurting. He got angry on the sake, for the sake of others and the oppressed and not for the, his own sake. When he was oppressed, when he was wronged, he stayed silent to pay our debt because we couldn't pay. He was gentle and he was kind. He drew near to those that no one wanted to draw near to. He touched the leper who no one was willing to touch. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he became a servant. He wasn't controlled by the fear of man, by the worries and cares of this world, by what he did or didn't have. He believed he had a heavenly father who was taking care of every one of his needs. I think the first thing we do is we just stop and we just look at Jesus and say, I want to be like him. I want that life that he has to offer. To not run, to not hide, to not make excuses, but to look it right in his face and say, believe this is what you want from me and I want to go on that journey of what it, what it will look like to move and to be formed into his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 just says, we with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus are transformed from one degree of glory to another and this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. Beholding his glory, we are transformed. But then more than that and finally and most importantly, we first receive his holiness as undeserved, amazing love for people that don't deserve it. My favorite example of this is Zacchaeus, who was not holy. <laughs> he did not live in the way of Leviticus 19. He robbed, he distorted, extorted, and was greedy. But Jesus saw him in a tree and said, I'm coming to your house. He accepted him. He loved him right where he was. And the end result of that dinner with Jesus being loved by the Holy One of God, he said, everyone I've wronged, I'm giving back twice. <laughs> Everything I've done, I'm, gonna, I'm going to change my whole ways because he had encountered the love of this Holy Jesus. And he wanted to be like him. This imitation of our Father has to be in the context of the never-going-anywhere love of God for us. A lot of us have heard this before, but it's incredibly important. We do not live for our identity. We, love, we live from our identity. We respond to what God has done for us. First John 4, this is love. Not that we've loved God. He's loved us. 
He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we become like Zacchaeus. People in need, knowing our yards are not where they're supposed to be. And yet receiving the welcome and love of King Jesus, the one we do not deserve to be near. But like Peter in the boat, he said, depart from me, for I'm a sinner. Jesus didn't leave the boat. He stuck with him, and he will stick with you no matter what. He is the one that will complete this. He is the one that brings about our change and transformation to look like him. We do not accomplish this. We just get near Jesus. We become closer friends. We draw near. We organize our lives in such a way that his presence and his beauty transforms us from one degree of the glory to the next so that we look up years from now and see I'm not who I was then. And I do look more like Jesus. I look more like my father. I'm becoming more in the image of my dad. John 15, Jesus says, as the father has loved me, I've loved you in the same way. He's talking to his disciples. As the Father has loved me, I've loved you in the same way. Make your home in my love. Make your home in my love. Abide in my love. Then you'll bear much fruit. Then you will look like your Father. Make your home in my love. And this ties all the way back to our future. And we have the worship team come back up as we go in a time of worship and response. In the second letter from Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 13, Peter writes to these believers, but according to this promise, we are awaiting, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. But according to his promise, this is God working this, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Our future when Jesus returns will be more glorious than we could ever imagine, but it will also look like the holiness of God, where there will be no abuse anymore. There will be no homelessness. There will be no rejection there will be no loss. There will be no death. And it will be a community of loving persons together with God in the very center. The glory of getting to enjoy him together. But the thing is, that renewal has already begun. And I hear it in this room. I hear it in the, the testimony of blame as he receives the love from his community in the hard times. And I see it in the way we care for one another. I see it in the way we care for the least of these. Because I see it in this community. We are meant to be those beacons of hope pointing to the new world, pointing to what the future of this earth will be. The kingdom of God is coming, but it has already arrived in Jesus. His resurrection has already, already happened and he is making us new. He has made us new. And now even the beautiful things of this world point us to the glory that's to come because it's all from God. And then even in the pain and the suffering that we experience now, 
turns our heart to long for what will be. So whether it's the joys or the sufferings, we have hope. And that's what we come to bring to this world. A declaration, a living witness and testimony of who Jesus is and what is coming to invite more in. And our task, our biggest task, is to press in further and deeper ourselves. To offer up to Jesus all the ways that we're walking in unholiness because he loves to forgive and pardon. And then he loves to renew and he loves to bring transformation and for us to taste the utter relief of his holiness, of actually living in it as he designed us to live. That's what we were meant for. That takes simply humility. It simply takes us recognizing where we're not. It takes us recognizing who he is and coming to him. It's not complicated, but sometimes it's really hard. Um, In this time um, that we pray and sing, we're going to have people up the front that would love to pray for you. If you want to come kneel at the stage and pray, do that. Or if you want to come pray with someone, do that. He is calling us into our future now, into what will be, to taste of it and to be lights of it to this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much that um, you have rescued us, that it is not us that's loved you, but you have loved us first. And as we respond now, I just ask that you would silence every lie of the enemy, every voice of condemnation. I command it gone. And I just ask that over all of this, we would receive the voice of a loving father who sent his son to die for us, that we would live, live life and life abundant. So, Father, I just ask you would speak, and the Holy Spirit asks you would speak, and that you ask that you would call us into steps that you have for us to find the freedom and joy that you intended for us and that you want for us in our lives. Would you speak during this time as we...